This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing classic American stories read by great readers to you whenever we can. And in the past, we've done Vincent Price reading The Raven, and that's Edgar Allan Poe's epic poem. We had a great reading from Walt Whitman's O Pioneer, O Pioneer. We heard a great reader read parts and excerpts of Thomas Paine's Great Common Sense, Emerson's Self-Reliance, and of course we heard Robert Frost read Robert Frost, and there's nothing like hearing Robert Frost read his own work. And today we bring you a short story by Ernest Hemingway entitled A Day's Wait, and it's read by actor Stacy Keach. It was first published in Hemingway's 1933 short story collection, Winner Take Nothing, about a nine-year-old boy who's sick during a cold winter. He came into the room to shut the windows while we were still in bed, and I saw he looked ill. He was shivering. His face was white. And he walked slowly as though it ached to move. What's the matter, Shots? I've got a headache. You better go back to bed. No, I'm all right. You go to bed. I'll see you when I'm dressed. But when I came downstairs, he was dressed, sitting by the fire, looking a very sick and miserable boy of nine years. When I put my hand on his forehead, I knew he had a fever. You go up to bed, I said. You're sick. I'm all right, he said. When the doctor came, he took the boy's temperature. What is it? I asked him. One hundred and two. Downstairs, the doctor left three different medicines in different colored capsules with instructions for giving them. One was to bring down the fever, another a purgative, the third to overcome an acid condition. The germs of influenza can only exist in an acid condition, he explained. He seemed to know all about influenza and said there was nothing to worry about if the fever did not go above 104 degrees. This was a light epidemic of flu, and there was no danger if you avoided pneumonia. Back in the room, I wrote the boy's temperature down and made a note of the time to give the various capsules. Do you want me to read to you? All right, if you want to, said the boy. His face was very white, and there were dark areas under his eyes. He lay still in the bed and seemed very detached from what was going on. I read aloud from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, but I could see he was not following what I was reading. How do you feel, Shots? I asked him. Just the same, so far, he said. I sat at the foot of the bed and read to myself while I waited for it to be time to give another capsule. It would have been natural for him to go to sleep, but when I looked up he was looking at the foot of the bed, looking very strangely. Why don't you try to go to sleep? I'll wake you up for the medicine. I'd rather stay awake. After a while he said to me, You don't have to stay in here with me, Papa, if it bothers you. Doesn't bother me. No, I mean, you don't have to stay if it's going to bother you. I thought perhaps he was a little light-headed, and after giving him the prescribed capsules at eleven o'clock, I went out for a while. It was a bright, cold day, the ground covered with a sleet that had frozen, so that it seemed as if all the bare trees, the bushes, the cut brush, and all the grass in the bare ground had been varnished with ice. I took the young Irish setter for a little walk up the road and along a frozen creek, but it was difficult to stand or walk on the glassy surface, and the red dog slipped and slithered, and I fell twice, hard, once dropping my gun and having it slide away over the ice. 
We flushed a covey of quail under a high clay bank with overhanging brush, and I killed two as they went out of sight over the top of the bank. Some of the covey lit in trees, but most of them scattered into brush piles, and it was necessary to jump on the ice-coated mounds of brush several times before they would flush. Coming out while you were poised unsteadily on the icy, springy brush, they made difficult shooting, and I killed two, missed five, and started back, pleased to have found a covey close to the house, and happy there were so many left to find on another day. At the house, they said the boy had refused to let anyone come into the room. You can't come in, he said. You mustn't get what I have. I went up to him and found him in exactly the position I had left him white-faced, but with the tops of his cheeks flushed by the fever, staring still as he had stared at the foot of the bed. I took his temperature. What is it? Something like a hundred, I said. It was one hundred and two and four-tenths. It was a hundred and two, he said. Who said so? The doctor? Your temperature is all right, I said. It's nothing to worry about. I don't worry, he said, but I can't keep from thinking. Don't think, I said. Just take it easy. I'm taking it easy, he said, and looked straight ahead. He was evidently holding tight onto himself about something. Take this with water. Do you think it will do any good? Of course it will. I sat down and opened the pirate book and commenced to read, but I could see he was not following, so I stopped. About what time do you think I'm going to die? he asked. What? About how long will it be before I die? You weren't going to die. What's the matter with you? Yes, I am. I heard him say a hundred and two. People don't die with a fever of one hundred and two. That's a silly way to talk. I know they do. At school in France, the boys told me you can't live with forty-four degrees. I've got a hundred and two. He had been waiting to die all day, ever since nine o'clock in the morning. You poor shots, I said. Poor old shots. It's like miles and kilometers. You aren't going to die. That's a different thermometer. On that thermometer, 37 is normal. On this kind, it's 98. Are you sure? Absolutely, I said. It's like miles and kilometers. You know, like how many kilometers we make when we do 70 miles in the car? Oh, he said. But his gaze at the foot of the bed relaxed slowly. The hold over himself relaxed too, finally. And the next day, it was very slack and he cried very easily at little things that were of no importance. A different glimpse into the usual machismo that you get in a Hemingway novel, for sure. And that's Stacy Keach, and no one reads anything like he does. As they say, he could read the phone book. Winner take nothing. A day's wait is the story. Pick up winner take nothing if you want to hear the rest of them. Short stories. Hemingway may have been the greatest short story writer this country's ever seen. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories, where we bring you stories of all kinds, from the arts to history, sports, and everything in between. And now, our own Joey Cortez brings us the story of Bob Dunlap. He's a good friend of mine from Batesville, Mississippi, where he started his wholesale tire business, Dunlap & Kyle. It's become one of the most successful tire companies in the country, and if you're from the South, you might better know Bob from his retail business, Gateway Tires and Service Center. Without further ado, let's kick off the story of Bob Dunlap. You'll see a guy back in his in his cluttered office. He'll be back there on the phone. He'll have a, a big cigar in in his mouth, and and he's holding court in there. And he's got a ton of paperwork on his desk. He goes over it. Every store he owns, every warehouse he owns, he's going through the numbers. He goes through all of that paperwork every single day. One of the core principles of that company, which is to work hard and be fair to everybody around you. And if you cross that line, if they thought that you were taking advantage of a customer or something, it was over. He kind of feigns a, a tough guy. If I walk in there, he knows my name. He says, hey, boy, hey, boy, come on in here. And that kind of gruff voice of his. But he's, you know, he's just the gentlest, kindest guy. If anyone ever saw him at home with one of these dogs laying, had one in his lap and one across his chest and one on top of his head on top of his chair, you would know that he has a soft heart. You're listening to the story of one of the most influential people in Mississippi, Bob Dunlap, a man who has built an empire out of tires. But this story isn't about his business life. It's about the people whose lives he's touched. Here's native Mississippian, former linebacker for the Green Bay Packers, the Colts, and Ole Miss, Tony Bennett. His friendship at a time, I think, even... So when it wasn't so culture for, you know, blacks to be where they were in certain places, never made me feel out of place. He's never, you know, there's never been any racial tension towards me. Tony and Bob first connected over their mutual love for hunting. Bob, a very accomplished man, took Tony, a very humble young man from Alligator, Mississippi, under his wing, becoming Tony's mentor during his emerging career. You know, once you're in college and there are some decisions that you're gonna make basically because your peers are making those decisions, great, you know, mentorship really curves you to stay focused on your track. One of the promises he asked, you know, he said, well, Tony said, promise me one thing. I said, well, what's that, Bob? He said, when you make your money, he said, don't, Go buy no fancy cars, no big houses and fancy cars. And uh, my smart aleck comment was, well, you, you know, you drive a Mercedes. <laughs> and I was just saying it as a joke, but he, he told me, he said, yeah, yeah. And I've worked my ass off all my life to get it. And he said, you know, if you play this sport, um, if you're able to play for however long you want to play, if it's 10 years or 12, and at the end of those 12 years, if you still feel that you wanted that Mercedes or whatever it is, you've earned it then. You've put your time in and you've truly earned it. And not just to be, you know, a first round draft pick rookie that comes up and buys a Bentley and then buys a, you know, two or three million dollar house. Put your time in, save your money, and 
at the end of your career, if that's what you want to get, then, you know, you deserve it. He's a, he's a good man. He's willing to help anyone, anyone that's willing to work, even people that have kind of screwed up in life, you know. He's giving people second and third chances. Um, but, but his rule is, I don't care what you've done, and you've admitted to what you've done, whatever it is, I'll give you a chance. If it's truly what you want to do, I'll give you a chance. But in the meantime, the, the, the deal is, you can't go back to what you were doing. So if you're a drugger, you can't go back to doing drugs or, you know, if you got out of prison, you can't go back to robbing and stealing or whatever it is that got you in this bad place. And he's willing to give anyone a second chance. We had a young man who had been in, in federal prison twice, once in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and the other time in Tennessee, both on drug convictions. That's Danny McKittrick, a U.S. Marshal who is a dear friend of Bob's and whose father was Bob's first employee at Dunlap and Kyle. When you really dug down and found out what was going on with this guy, his drug sales were always in the support of his family. He was working a job. He just wasn't making enough to support a wife and two kids. So he winds up in Oxford, Mississippi. Some people talked to me about him. He was no longer on federal supervision. He had gotten a GED when he was in prison, so he had, you know, had never formally graduated from high school, but did get a GED in prison and was looking for a job. And so uh, I called Bob and he said, yes, yeah, send him to Batesville and let him work for Keith Patton for about six months, and then Keith will tell us whether he's a worker or not. I forgot about the guy, really and truly. I was just driving down the road one day, and I thought, man, I don't ever remember what. I never heard anything else about this young man. And I called Keith out of the blue, and he said, oh, he said, this guy, he said, nobody beats me to work, but he said, this kid beats me to work every morning. And he, on his own, this young man, uh, found out that there was some tuition assistance through Gateway Tire and Service Center in Dunlap and Kyle, and so he inquired about going to school. At some point, Bob told him to bring him over to his office, and he may have been working there about a year then. And uh, he met this young man, and he was so intrigued by this kid's story and his work ethic, and he said, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do today? If you, if, if there were no barriers, what would you do? And he said, I would love to get a college education. And Bob literally picked up the phone and called Ole Miss, said this young man wants to go to school, set it up, and send the bill to me. And so he hung up and said, uh, you should, uh, class starts Monday. So Bob paid him a salary and then paid for his school. So it wasn't just like a scholarship or something, you know. And he said, you um, have to keep a three-point GPA. Your school and your children always come first. Don't come to work having not done your homework. You do your homework first, and then you come to work, and, and you'll be fair, you know, and give us as many hours as you can give us to kind of offset this a little bit. And then, you know, we'll see how you do. And so here's a guy who had a GED out of a prison system. You know, I mean, it's remarkable. I don't think I could have pulled that off to gone back to school and started and having, you know, it's time to take college algebra and trigonometry and, you know, and he killed it. You know, he graduated with over a three-point average and then came back to work for Dunlap and Kyle. And here's the remarkable part of that story, though. He got a job offer 
and took a job away from Gateway Tire and Service Center. I was dreading going back to Bob and saying, this young man got a job and he's going to take a position. It was like this investment had been made in him and there was no return on it. And that was so short-sighted on my part because when I sat down with Bob and I said, this young man's got a job offer, and he said, yeah, I heard about it. He said, what a remarkable you know, experience for this young man that he's got this opportunity in front of him. And I, was, I said, so you're not disappointed? He said, no, if that job doesn't work out, then he can always come back to work here. He's already proven himself, but he said this was about improving his life, not improving my life. This was about him having the ability to go get a better paying job than I could offer him. He said, that's capitalism at his best. You know, he said, there's an investment that'll keep on paying. He said, what a fool he would be not to take a $20,000 pay raise, you know. So there was no expectation that he would have to pay all those dividends back into the Dunlap and Kyle or the Gateway Tire and Service Center. There was only the expectation that he would do well and raise his children properly. So if there's a story that, if there's a singular tale that would tell the story of Bob Dunlap, that's probably it. You know, where I was pacing the floor thinking, God, I can't believe I got to tell him this guy's going to move to Arkansas and take this job. He was like, no, I already know about it. He said, no, I'm, I'm good, you know. He, uh, he did what we hoped he would do. He graduated from college. He has an education. He can support his family now. You know, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? And by the way, you're hearing this story, well, the many stories of Bob Dunlap. We will continue after these commercial messages. I'd love to hear stories about Bob Dunlap's in your neighborhood. This is the heart of capitalism. Remember what he said. They said, work hard, be fair, take advantage of a customer, and it's over. And that's the heart of capitalism, folks. You got to make the better food. You got to serve your customers. You got to love your customers, your employees. And then the heart of capitalism is so many of the people who create these jobs in these towns, well, they create the tax base, and they do all these beautiful things. Bob Dunlap's story, a beautiful American story, a beautiful business story, and a beautiful Mississippi story, here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and the story of the founder of one of the most successful tire companies in the country. And we're talking about Bob Dunlap. Let's get back to Joey Cortez with the rest of this remarkable story. To Bob Dunlap, the starting point to get ahead in life is education. It's something deeply personal to him. So personal that Bob can name every single teacher he has ever had consecutively like reciting the ABCs. Here's David Cruz, another dear friend of Bob Dunlap's, with some insight on Bob's efforts to provide more educational opportunity to the people of North Mississippi. He has done so much for education in that community. You know, people have come to him and said, Mr. Bob, we need help buying some computers for this school, and we need to raise $30,000, and 
and he says, well, y'all go out and raise as much as you can, and I'll help make up the difference. And people have no idea how many people he has sent to college, people who could not afford to go to college uh, without him undergirding that. If he finds someone with some character who can't afford to go to college, he's just going to generously send them to college in hopes that they'll become productive citizens. There are probably hundreds of people he has helped get through college, make a life for themselves after prison or after some other hardship in their life. It just became evident that nobody had the accurate number, that when you talk to the president of Mississippi State, when you talk to the people at the University of Mississippi, at Northwest, at Etiwamba, at all these different colleges and, and universities, that everybody knew a dozen or so people that he had put through school that nobody else knew about. You know, So we don't know how many people uh, he did this for, but a lot of those people were convicted felons. Bob find some spark about them, some hope, some shred that they may become productive citizens and turn their lives around. And he helps undergird that and helps make that happen by employing them. As long as they're willing to work hard, as long as they're willing to turn their lives around, as long as there's some hope that they'll become productive citizens, he's going to help them out. And he never talks about it. I know two young African-American kids who got prosecuted as adults when they were involved in an armed robbery. And they were like the watch out people, you know, they, they weren't inside the store. But at any rate, they got convicted as adults to a really, really long prison term. Bob worked so hard to get a pardon for them and finally got them out of prison. And then he put both of them through Ole Miss. One of them I know is an engineer that graduated with an engineering degree, and the other one runs Gateway Tire and Service Center in Memphis and turned that store around up there. My name is Kamario. I am a manager for one of Bob Dunlap's retail stores, Gateway Tire and Service Center in Memphis, Tennessee. Mr. Bob did a lot of stuff for a lot of people, helped a lot of families, helped me. It's, it's, it's a, a sensitive <laughs> story, you know, I'm, I was a football player, played at South Panola, uh, was signing to go to Ole Miss after high school. Did some things that I shouldn't have done. You go from being the all-star in high school, all-star in college, and then out of a sudden, something comes back that you did at the age of 15. I got locked up when I was 20. And, and the whole time I was in there, Mr. Bob was fighting to get me out. I prayed so much, so often. <laughs> Anything particularly, you know, just keep me safe. And a lot of times people, when they get in those situations, even when they're released, mentally they're not the same. And I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't allow that to destroy my mentality. Camario and his friend were sentenced to 15 years in prison and ended up serving about half of that. The mistakes that I did make and the mistake that, that was, was on my record, Mr. Bob, he, he knew some people and he got that taken off. I talked to him and told him I wanted a job. He said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put you in one of the stores. He just, just told me to work hard. You know, when he hired me, I told him, I said, Mr. Bob, I'm, I'm not going to let you down. And that's what I did. I worked hard. I was at work every day, never late, never missed days. Uh, and I just remembered what he said, you know, just work hard and to pay off. And I just worked my butt off, you know, because, you know, now you've got a second chance. What are you going to do with it? So I, I promised myself that I would 
work as hard as I could and and I worked and I worked and I finally got a promotion to assistant manager and I worked and I worked and I got a promotion to manager. Yeah, store manager. And I've been managing ever since and it's it's a blessing. Yeah. And it's all because of him, because I don't know what I would have been doing without uh, him giving me another chance. And everybody deserves another another chance. You know, he, he if it had not been for Mr. Bob, you, uh, I wouldn't have had a second chance. Uh, There's a lot of people out there like us that he's helped. And I mean, I mean, we're changed. You know, you're looking at, I'm 39 years old now. I'm not the same man that I was at 15. I don't think the same that I did at 15. You know, a lot of times when, when people get out, they're, they're not allotted another opportunity. So they're thrown away, and then you have that strike on your record, so you can't go get a job. So now you're, you're stuck at doing the same thing that you were doing to get there. You got somebody that's done for, for, for you what he's done for me, you can't help but to have some kind of love for him. Yeah, so yeah, he knows, he knows how I feel about him. Because I can be in here some days and I just call and tell him, I'm just calling and check on you. So I do that all the time. He just tell me, man, just, just work. Just work hard. And that's what I do. People, people always ask the question that that's never met him and wonder, are the stories true? Like, is this guy really that good? Is he, is he really that good to people he doesn't know? Does he just help everybody? It, that's, that's his nature. Just help people. That's just who he is. I'm glad I came in his path in life. Because if I hadn't, I don't know, you know where I would be now. If you go sit in that company, if you go sit in the lobby outside of his office and watch the number of people, some who have called and made appointments and others who just walk in and are needing something, from rent to my car's broken down, he's really a, a social worker. That's really and truly what, what he does. The way he connects with people, the youngest people, the oldest people, blacks, whites, Hispanics, every walk of life is just, he's tethered to them. If you're blessed, like I've been, you have an opportunity to meet at least one of these people in your lifetime. There are some that are close, but I mean, he's definitely one of a kind. Like I said, I'm blessed to, to have been in this situation to have met him. I think that God puts certain people on earth to help other people. Everybody's not gonna be successful. Uh, I think that some people that are blessed to have that drive to become successful help those that, whether or not they didn't have the drive or whether or not they just were laid, whatever it may be. I think it's just a lot of people that were put here to, to help those people. So I could be wrong, but it's just how I see it. And I think he was one of the ones put here to help the less fortunate. Bob Dunlap's a man of character, he's a man of, of immense generosity. He's a man who cares about people on, on a very personal level. If you model yourself after a man with that kind of character and that kind of drive and that kind of commitment to life and to people, you will be successful. Very few of us are ever going to be as successful as Bob Dunlap, but uh, you will have a rich thriving, successful life if you model yourself just a little bit after Bob Dunlap. And all of that is true. And long before there was talk of prison reform in this country and second chances, Bob Dunlap was giving guys a second chance and a second lease on life. 
Work hard is what he asked from Camario. And uh, Camario did just that. Manages a store and calls his life blessed. And it's so true. I'm not the same man I was when I was 15. And who among us can say that's not true in our own lives? And that we all didn't catch some breaks along our life because of love and the generosity of a stranger. A great American story. Again, a great Mississippi story. Again, if you have stories about people like this in your neighborhood, and folks, they're all over the country, men like Bob Dunlap and women too. This is a great and beautiful country. Bob Dunlap's story here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our very favorites. Often teams will retire numbers worn by players with great legacies. The Yankees retired number four for Lou Gehrig. The Pittsburgh Steelers retired 75 for Mean Joe Green. Numbers like 42 for Jackie Robinson, 99 for Wayne Gretzky, have been retired league-wise for the respective sports. But sometimes, especially in college sports, a jersey is passed from player to player. And today, Robbie brings us the first story from our number 18 series, straight out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You've heard from Jack Marucci before, LSU's director of athletic training, and here he is again to introduce us to the number 18. He wore the number 18 jersey here, which represents a model person. And every 18 now was voted by the equipment guys, sports information, weight room. Everybody had a say to say, all right, this is the guy we like. This is, the, this is our leader. So any scout that comes here, they know, well, he wore 18, so we don't have to ask about character. Before a game, a big game, all these little kids have 18s on. Who would ever thought that would be the, the case? It's Because it's a staple number now. It's in the College Hall of Fame, the story. The 18, what it represents. Number 18. The story of LSU football's men of character. This week, we have the second and third players to wear the number, Jacob Hester and Richard Dixon. The, the story of it really was, you know, Jake's senior year and my sophomore year, the ball really started rolling. I started talking about swapping jerseys. I was actually coming in from high school, and Matt Mock had wore 18 at LSU the year before in 2003, and LSU won a national championship. LSU wins the BCS national championship. So obviously, you know, you're the quarterback of a national championship team. Uh, it's, it's a big deal, and I was coming in and didn't really, you know, have a jersey number, didn't really care either way, one way or the other. It was not something I thought about. Just because, like, I was a freshman, I was excited to come to LSU being from Louisiana. 
they thought it kind of be cool to pass Matt's number down since he just won a national championship and you know Louisiana being the 18th state and that meaning something and so lucky enough I don't know how maybe I tricked them I don't know what the scenario was there but they chose me I don't know, uh, you know, if a freshman will ever wear it again, and so that's something that that's special for me that I was able to wear it four years, kind of really before it became a thing. And I guess if I would have, you know, not had a career, not played, then it wouldn't have been a thing. It had just gone away, and it was an honor because I knew Matt Mock, I knew what he meant to his football team, I knew the leader that he was, and I knew. Uh, that if he took the time and kind of chose me to wear number 18, the last thing that I kind of wanted to do was disappoint Matt Mock and Jack Marucci and, and Greg Stringfellow, the equipment manager at LSU. These, you know, these guys that took a chance on me as a freshman. The, the first time Jake had mentioned for me wearing the jersey, we were playing on the road at Kentucky, and Kentucky had a, a guy that played my position, Jacob Tammy, and he wore the number 18. I, I just remember the Friday night meetings before the game, Jake was like, hey, Watch, uh, watch Tammy. Watch how good number 18 looks on a, on a tight end. And uh, he started, you know, making jokes like that and saying that, that's going to be your number next year. Um, just take a look at it. The guy looks good in 18. No one called me. I, I didn't get uh, a text message or anything. I, I showed up for spring training, and uh, my locker had been moved, and you know, I had a new number on my locker. So you know, it was like a surprise deal that no one. At first, it wasn't going to happen. We thought Miles had shut it down, and then. You know, I show up to practice, and there it is. I'm wearing the number 18. That was still kind of the beginnings. Obviously, Matt, you know, kind of passed it down to me, and it was a story kind of in between some of us. It hadn't really hit, you know, the media circuit yet. And then once I passed it to Richard, he started to gain some steam there. It's, it's something that has grown. I didn't think it could ever get to this point. Uh, I was just honored that somebody chose me. And so the fact that it's hanging in the College Football Hall of Fame, uh, that's – it's it's outstanding feeling to know that you're a part of something like that at a school like LSU that like doesn't have uh, you know this long list of retired jersey numbers. I mean, there's only three football numbers in the history of LSU football to be retired. Yes, it's not retired. It's never going to be retired because it's always going to be passed down. And to me, that's just as special. But what does it take to be chosen for number 18? It's not you know necessarily going to the best football player on the team. That's not what it's about. It's about being the ultimate Tiger. It's a guy you don't have to worry about getting in trouble off the field. It's a guy that you know is going to do the right things in the classroom. Now, is he going to be a football player and contribute to the team? He can't, you know, not play and get the number 18, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're the best player on the team. It means you're the ultimate team guy. You're going to do whatever it takes to sacrifice for your brothers, for your teammates, for your school. Your school's never going to have to worry about your name being in the headlines for the, the wrong reasons. It, it made me become more of a vocal leader, uh, a guy that would get up and hold people accountable. Because you know, when you know, when Jake left, you know, we just won a national championship, and then I'm coming back as a junior the next year wearing the number 18. We didn't have a great season that year. We had lost you know a bunch of guys to the NFL. We had lost um, a coordinator went to become a head coach in Nebraska. Um, we, we were putting a lot of things back together, and I knew when we we had a loss early in the year, and it was against a team that I didn't think we should lose. That um, you know, I it made me want to be the the vocal guy. I I didn't want to you know wear the number eighteen, and then LSU had a bad season. I, I it just put more pressure on my back to hold everybody accountable, um, and, and really you know make me get in some people's faces that I probably wouldn't have gotten in in the past, and make sure that they were doing everything they could. You put that jersey on your back, and everybody is expecting 
you to, to make every every right decision. You don't you're not supposed right. to have a bad decision after that, you know. And it's that's to me where the pressure comes on is you know you don't want to let not only the guys that are that wore it before you, but you know the coaches, the way that they're talking to you now, the way that they're looking at you is you know you're wearing that jersey for a reason, and we want you to do the right thing. So, um, you know, to me personally, I was I always wanted to do the right thing, but that jersey, you know, just you know kept you in check and made you realize what you had done to put it on and you know what you do to to right. earn it. When the NFL scouts come in, they'll ask before it's even passed down, like, okay, well, who's up for number 18 this year? Give me the three names so we know who we can kind of cross off of our character issue, guys. Hey, Foster, it's John Groove. I just want to know if you want to be a Raider, brother. I'd love to be a Raider, Coach. Good, man. You got the right stuff, man. You wear that number 18 for a reason, right? Yes, sir. You know it. When you watch the NFL draft and there's these guys that are commenting on, he wore the number 18 right. jersey, we know what type of player he is. I can remember after Benny Logan getting drafted and the, the GM of the Eagles coming out and saying, well, he wore the number 18, we, we know what type of player right. he is. You know, kind of as it grew, being able to tell my teammates, you know, what it meant by the end of my NFL career, they started to really figure it out because it started to become something that was talked about, something that was understood. NFL teams know about it, right? When John Gruden knows about it, when the Eagles know about it, when the Chargers know about it, throughout you know a decade here that's something that's only going to pick up steam once you wear that number it's it's not like oh, oh crap i don't want to disappoint coach or i don't want to disappoint you know my dad um it, at this point you don't want to disappoint the 18s you don't want to make them look like they made a mistake in giving you the number that uh you know they they trusted you to wear that jersey so you know that you have an outside pressure of everyone else watching you and it may not may not be the case but there's more people that you're worried about disappointing and there's a lot more people you think about because you know getting that jersey is one of the biggest moments of your playing career and then you know you think about ever doing something to disappoint those guys that gave it to you is it will always be on your mind you're, this is not what we expect of you right now on the football field, but it's what we expect from you 10 years down the road. Just in the last year and a half, we started the, the 18 group chat. And, uh, you know, we haven't had the case yet, but, you know, people make mistakes. And I guarantee you, if it was a guy that wore number 18 that messed up, you know, further down the road, you know, at 30, 35, the first people that are going to talk to him are the guys in that group message. And they're going to go see, you know, what's going on, what's, what's happening. And they're the guys that are gonna, would be there to figure out, you know, what's going on we know this isn't you i mean these guys are going to hold each other accountable and there's not there's not much you can do that somebody in that group isn't going to find out i mean it's a group of guys that will always hold each other accountable and they're a group of guys that doesn't want to disappoint one another i have four sons myself and they understand i mean they're nine seven six and three but even they understand what it means to wear number 18 at lsu it's something i've been able to talk with them about something that when we're out in public and they hear, you know, after a while, like, okay, dad, why does everybody keep coming up to you asking you about number 18? And so to be able to sit down with them and tell them what that means and tell them that, hey, this isn't just a four-year deal. This isn't a, once you get that jersey number on your back, it's something that you have to hold that the rest of your life, right? You can't just wear number 18 at LSU and be a good guy and everybody counting on you and then later in life, just be a dirtbag. That's not yeah. how it works. It means you hold yourself to a certain standard. And if you don't hold yourself to that standard, you're probably not being talked about in those discussions. Every year it kind of comes down to a short list of three or four players. And that's one of the criteria. It's like, okay, well, in 10 years when this guy's gone, when this guy's played 10 years in the NFL and he retires, is this somebody we're still going you know, to be happy and, and excited about wearing the number 18? And so it's a big decision Obviously, when I got it, it wasn't at that level, yeah. but that's what it's grown to, and it's something that I can't tell you how proud I am 
I'm more proud about wearing 18 than probably anything else I've done in my sporting career. Now, obviously, there's some team things that mean more to you because you did those with your teammates. But individual goals, all SEC, any of that stuff, getting drafted, playing, that, that doesn't mean anything compared to what 18 means. And you've been listening to the story of LSU football's number 18. And what a thing for teachers to do, for schools to do. What a standard to hold at least one person to that then raises the bar for everybody else on that team. Because you can't run for 18. Uh, This is how you make for better teams, better communities, and for a better country. The story of LSU football's number 18, and we're going to have more of these because there are so many good ones. That story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Recently, I was at Hillsdale College, where I teach two weeks a year to the fantastic students there, and I came across a young woman who had had a story to tell But it wasn't her own. It was her mother's. Emily Barnum's brother, Braden, committed suicide in 2013. Today, Emily and her mom, Jill, bring us a story of recovery and reconciliation. Here's Emily. My mom sits next to me on the couch and with her eyes squeezed tightly shut, recites the following prayer from memory. Be thou triune God, in our midst, as we give thanks for those who are gone from earthly eyes. For they in thy nearer presence continue to worship you in the mystery that is one family in heaven and on earth. If it be thy holy will, please tell them how much we love them, how much we miss them, how much we long to see them again. Strengthen us to go on in loving service of all thy children. Thus we will have closer communion with thee, and with thee, our loved ones. Thus we will come to know that there is no death, only a veil divides, thin as gossamer. This is my mom's response to the question, how did you get to where you are now? This prayer has provided her a personal theology of grief, a kind of map to the devastation of the loss of her son to suicide. Her 20-year-old son, Braden Barnum, died in a violent high-speed car crash in October 2013. Jill Barnum was in her mid-40s, a wife, mother of three, and part-time nurse. She was at the hospital working an evening shift in the immediate care when she received the news of her son's death. How does someone even begin to recover from this kind of loss? I look at my mom six years later and see a hopeful, even joyful individual, busy leading yoga classes and facilitating writing workshops, crafting her own sometimes hilarious and sometimes tear-inciting poems. 
The most amazing quality I see in my mom is her ability to forgive. But this ability to forgive is something that has had to be intentionally cultivated. It's been a process, a long, challenging, messy, but very inspiring process. Really on every level, it has been a pilgrimage, one that is very much still ongoing. In the first months after Bray's death, mom recounts developing very difficult emotions. Right after Bray died, we um, were just going through the motions, getting by. Then about four months later, we went on a family vacation. And it was a vacation of four of us instead of a family of five. And I believe that's when when the uh, permanence of Bray's decision started to set in. And that's when I started to really feel sad and then quickly very angry. My mom was raised in an intense conservative religious setting. And she sees this as one of the contributing factors to feeling an immense amount of pressure to be a perfect person, a perfect mom. So I never deluded myself. I never thought I was a perfect person, perfect mom, or that we were perfect parents. But we worked hard to raise our kids to be good Christians. In fact, I wanted my kids to love God in a authentic way. It wasn't even just going through the motions, but we did. We, uh, we attended church regularly, we studied the Bible, we taught the Bible, we memorized scripture, and so on. So when Bray died, my faith and my mothering were on trial. We had fallen into the mistake of believing that when you're doing things right, trying to do the right thing, be good people, that the bad things don't happen to good people. Suicide death, perhaps more than any, more than other kinds of loss, elicit a lot of guilt. I needed, I learned early on uh, that my grief process would be separating out mothering and faith from mental illness and suicidal ideation as a cause for his decision, for his decision to die, to kill himself, to blame mothering. Looking back, both my mom and my dad had channeled all their energy into doing everything right. The way had been set out before them and they had followed it, but it had not worked. Nothing, not the careful parenting, the psychiatrists, the counselors, the meds, had worked to save their son from his mental illness and suicidal ideations. Rebellion had never been an option for my mom, but now it was the only thing left. She remembers going for runs and literally yelling at God. I would go out for a run and I was yelling at God. If you can't tell Bray that I love him, that I'm sorry and that I miss him, then if you can't give that to me, I want nothing from you. Nothing to do with you, God.
And that was the mother. That's Emily's mother, Jill. And this suicide, well, it shattered the family and shattered, well, at least the mom's faith and faith in her own mothering capabilities and capacities. And by the way, suicide is a subject we've touched on before and will continue to because it, it haunts and hurts so many people. So many people are affected by this. There probably aren't many families in America who haven't in some way experienced this. When we come back, Jill and Emily Barnum's story coming to terms with their brother and son's death by suicide in 2013, Braden, here on Our American Stories. back with the story of Jill Barnum here on Our American Stories, the mother of Emily Barnum, who's a student at Hillsdale College, a young woman I met while teaching there this past year. When we last heard from her, Jill was doubting her faith in the midst of losing her own son to suicide. Here's the mom, here's Jill. As time went on, my anger and really my hatred, hatred of myself, hatred of my family, hatred of my background, um, just grew and uh, carried around an, an enormous sense of failure. Um, my thoughts became circular and destructive, obsessing about what I could have done differently or how I could have helped Bray. But there must have been something in there um, in me that knew that I needed to do something different. So I began planning this trip into the woods. The way out of consuming bitterness first emerged in the form of a trail map, which my mom found in a sporting goods store. I don't know why I went into that sporting goods store, but once there, I found my way to a a map rack and a map for the Jordan River Valley um, got my attention and I recognized it as a backpacking trip um, in northern Michigan just several hours from where I live and I remember that I just almost automatically decided that is something I'm going to do that is something I'm going to make happen. And I've, I've never backpacked before. So, yeah, it just became something new to be consumed with, other than grief and anger. For my mom, backpacking became a way of replacing the negative thoughts. My mom understood that there was no way to undo what had happened, Braden ending his life and any role she had played in that but she knew that her obsessive thoughts were not in service to pursuing the truest and fairest narrative. Out on the trail, my mom fell into prayer. This kind of prayer was very meditative and repetitious, 
it corresponded with what she was actually physically doing, uh, walking and walking and walking. She was out in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, with just a pack and a journal, her thoughts and God. So as my foot, my boot hit the trail, I paired each footfall with a phrase. I'm sorry, I love you, I miss you. I'm sorry, I love you, I miss you. And walking became very methodical, very meditative. Uh, with each click of my pole, each footfall, the squeaking of my backpack. I love the sound of a squeaking backpack. But the circular and angry thoughts were becoming less and less prevalent. And I was becoming more peaceful out on the trail. It was the first anniversary of her son's death when my mom came back from the trail and the reality had not changed. She was still mourning the loss of her son and would be in some way for the rest of her life. But she had found a tangible way to help herself move forward. Somewhere in this process, my mom began accompanying my dad and me to a new church where there was a fresh message of love and grace. I went off to college, but when I came back to visit, my mom was attending a church book group. This was when she encountered the prayer which was to become her personal theology of grief. It was tucked away in one of the group's readings on Celtic spirituality. The church was preparing to go on a pilgrimage to Scotland, to Iona, Scotland, and so we were, we were reading through um, some material on Celtic spirituality, and my eyes fell on that middle stanza. If it be your perfect will, will you tell them how much we love them and miss them? I immediately recognized in that stanza the same ideas, the same instinct of what I wanted to say to God, that I was yelling on the road as I ran down the road, and the same thing that I was repetitively um, saying in a mantra and a prayer on the hiking trail. And here it was in this published official prayer written by a ordained pastor from another land, from another part of the world. And I was so relieved. I don't think I was looking for affirmation, but I was so relieved to see that somebody else had the same instinct and that he was respectful and legit. <laughs> so it, it was just affirming and that's where I started. That was the beginning of making this prayer my own. If it be thy holy will, please tell them how much we love them, how much we miss them, how much we long to see them again. The next time my mom went into the woods, her journal had this prayer written inside the front cover. She had walked and prayed, and as she did so, the prayer became a part of who she was. My mom was trailing miles, but the real feat was the quiet and steady healing of her spirit. This prayer offered a way for my mom to love Braden now, first because it allowed her to say what she wished she could have said more often when he was alive. 
but I also invited her to do something after what felt like a million missed chances. If I could go back, I would have been more, I would be more comforting for Bray. I would have hugged him more, of course tell him that I loved him, and just listen more. His suffering for me was an indictment of my, my mothering or our parenting. And there was something, something selfish about that because I made it about myself sometimes, but I don't know if anything would have been different. And that's a question I'll never be able to answer, of course. But I do know that I wish I'd been more comforting. After the second stanza, my mom entered the theology of the prayer laid out in the first stanza. Be thou triune God in our midst, as we give thanks for those who are gone from earthly eyes. For they in thy nearer presence continue to worship you in the mystery that is one family in heaven and on earth. I struggled to pray into and believe that first stanza because it implies in family and friends, church or biological, harmony and connectedness. And I did not have capacity for harmony and connectedness. So as I worked to become more emotionally healthy and I healed that first stanza, became easier to pray. As my mom continued to move forward in her healing, she moved beyond the first and middle stanzas of the prayer to the last, which encouraged her to love Bray now through loving the part of the one family still on earth. Strengthen us to go on in loving service of all thy children. The, the middle stanza that drew me in was comforting. The first stanza was teaching me to forgive. And so then when I moved on to the final stanza, strengthen us to go on, it was teaching me how to go on living. I don't know if I was doing any more different serving than I've ever done before, but the activities I did to connect with and love other people were dedicated and still are dedicated to Bray. I really do believe that. As we serve, we're closer to God and and being closer to God, we're closer to our loved ones. And a special thanks to Jill Barnum for telling her story. It's a tough one to tell when a son commits suicide. And a special thanks to Emily Barnum, the daughter who really wanted this to happen and really serving her mom. And what a triumph this story was of, of forgiveness over grief. And in the end, a path back to God and to family. By the way, I'm sorry, I love you, and I miss you. Well, those, those three sentences can't be stated enough in your life. If we learned anything from this story, that's it. If I could go back, Jill said, I'd be more comforting. I'd just listen more. Braden's suffering was an indictment of my parenting. And that was selfish because that was about me. What I do wish in the end is that I was more comforting. The Barnum Family Story, here on Our American Story.
And we continue here with Our American Stories. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the voice and story of Trudy Cathy White, the author of the book Climb Every Mountain. Here's Trudy with some stories. You know, when I was a little girl, I used to look out into our backyard and I saw this massive looking mountain and our family used to climb up this mountain and watch the sunset and in the springtime, in the summer. And so I've just always kind of been fascinated with mountains. For me, mountains have been a symbol of of God. It's just when I'm in the mountains, I feel so close to the Lord. When I look at the mountains, I recognize the fact that they're so unchanging. They're always there. They were created by God. They're just a reflection of who God is in terms of His character, His faithfulness, and His love. You can just count on Him. In a changing world, He's the one thing that never changes. But at the same time, I look at these mountains and they remind me they're kind of a symbol of life's challenges, that life is hard and it's difficult. And when we're going through difficult times in our life, we feel like we're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And it seems like, you know, the the more we climb, the harder it seems to get. And so I was in a really dark season of my life and I was kind of thinking in my mind, boy, does anybody else have to deal with life like this? Am I the only one? And then of course I realized, Well, of course, I'm not the only one. Everybody has problems and challenges and and difficulties. And I thought, you know, I think I'll I'll just want to write about personal stories of challenges that I've had and how I have found God to be faithful in every one of those. And one of Trudy Cathy White's very first mountains was who she was. Going off to camp as a little girl, my parents took me to overnight camp and I went to a girls camp. My brothers went to a boys camp. And I loved being at the camp, one, because there were mountains, but two, because I could kind of be who I was. Everywhere I went, I was introduced as, you know, this is Trudy, the daughter of Jeanette and Trick Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. Or, you know, I was introduced as this is the sister of Dan and Bubba Cathy, my two brothers. But at camp, I was just Trudy. And it was good to be in an environment like that where I could kind of just be myself. When I got older, I served as the director for another camp for about 13 years. And when the campers were coming in for their first day at camp, parents were bringing them in. Parents would come up to me to introduce their children to me and they would say, "Uh, you know who this is? This is Trudy, she's gonna be your camp director. And then the next thing they would say is they said, but do you know who she really is? And then they would say, she's the daughter of the man who invented that Chick-fil-A that you like to eat. And that, that was just, you know, over and over and over. And when people would say that comment, do you know who she really is? I, I would think in my mind, you know, I understand what they're saying, but that's not really who I am. So in my old self, I, you know, just to think about if I only look at what I do and who I am, it's not a very good way to kind of really understand my identity. In terms of what I do, I, I do a lot. I'm a speaker, I'm an author, I'm a representative with Chick-fil-A family. And in terms of, you know, who I am, my goodness, that's a loaded question. I'm a grandmother, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of things, but that doesn't define me. And when I stay right there with those questions and those type of answers, what it does for me is it causes me to play this comparison game. So I start looking at other people and I say, well, I can do this, but look at what they can do. Why can't I do 
what they do, or this is who I am. I wish I could be like this person. So we, we compare ourselves all the time. And my mother used to tell us when we were children, she would stand at the back door as we would leave out for the day. And she had this little phrase. She would say, remember who you are and whose you are. And when we'd hear that statement when we were young, I don't think we really got it. But later on, it was so important that we realized who we are. Because you think about the fact that I am because He is. Because God made me, that's why I even exist. And you kind of ask, well, am, am, I, am I my own? You know, do I, have, do I get to make my own choices? Do I get to, to make all the, the decisions for my life? And I realized, hey, you know, I'm really not my own. I've been bought with a price. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for me. So the Bible says that He paid the penalty for my sin. And actually, who I am is all wrapped up in who God is and what He's doing through my life. So it gives you a whole new perspective on life. And you don't have to compare yourself to other people. You just try to walk the walk that God has given you and understand how you're wired and how God has gifted you and recognize the fact that the value that comes in your life because of that more mountains popped up for Trudy, especially when she and her husband decided to enter a foreign land. John and I were missionaries in Brazil for quite a while, and when we first went, we realized that we were going to have to learn Portuguese, and Portuguese is a difficult language, and it's hard enough, particularly if you're an adult, very, very difficult. And I remember one day, I just kind of had it. I thought, I, I, I want to go back to the States. I can't do this. I, I went in my bedroom. I remember I shut the door. I was really, really angry with the Lord, and I began to cry, and I just poured my heart out to Him, and I said, Lord, you know, I, I'm trying so hard. I just can't do this. My daughter was four years old. You know, she's young, and she's catching on to the language, and she got to the point where she could understand and, and speak things better than I could, so I depended on her a lot. I took her with me. If you can imagine a four-year-old, long blonde hair, blue eyes, and here's this mother so dependent on her little girl to help her with the language. But one day we were shopping together, and I couldn't think of the word that I needed to use, so I asked her how to say the word, and she told me a word, and I said it to the uh, Brazilian lady there, and the lady acted like she didn't understand me. So I asked my daughter Joy, I said, tell me that word one more time, and let me say it to the lady, and she gave me a word, I said it. But the third time I looked around, and my daughter was laughing because she just made up a word. It wasn't Portuguese at all. And I realized what she was doing. She thought, you know, this would be a fun game to play with my mom. She doesn't know the language very well, and she'll repeat anything that I tell her. So, <laughs> so she made up a word, and it was not funny at the moment. In fact, I was totally embarrassed. I, I thought she was being extremely disrespectful. And I put her in the car. I got in the car, and, and we left. And I went home, and that was when I had this moment, this encounter with the Lord. I, I put her in a room, and I went to a room, and I tried to hash this thing out with the Lord because I, I told him, I said, you know, my own daughter's turned her back on me. I don't know what I'm going to do now. You know, it's like, I don't have any more help. I don't have any more resources. And then the Lord kind of hits me over the head and says, Trudy, you know, I'm the one you need to depend on, you know, not your daughter. I go back to that moment many times, even now, and I'm reminded that, okay, I'm encountering something that I think is going to be difficult or it's going to stretch me, but I'm going to depend on the Lord because I feel like this is the thing I need to be doing. And I think that's an awesome place to live your life because I think God really wants us to step out of our zone every once in a while and do some things that maybe we've not tried before and allow Him to show what He can do through us. So that's amazing. I think that's a big part of this idea of just walking day to day in a personal relationship with the maker of this world. 
And you're listening to Trudy Kathy White. And by the way, she's author of Climb Every Mountain, which you can buy at climbeverymountain.com. And what a unique voice. And my goodness, she was mad at her daughter when she shouldn't have. Her daughter didn't disrespect her. She was just having a little fun with mom. And if mom had had a better sense of humor and was in the space that she needed to be, she could have enjoyed it. But that's where she came to depend on her relationship with God to get her through that moment, to set her straight. And for so many Americans, myself included, that relationship with God is primal. And Christians, Jews, Muslims, it's a primal relationship. And then for all the non-believers out there, well, we tell your stories too. And we're sensitive to all of them because this is a country filled with all kinds of good people trying to do good things in their own way. And my goodness, Trudy Kathy White is just such a person. I mean, going to Brazil to do mission work and help people in need, this isn't just a casual relationship with witnessing to her God. This is honoring her God, and we need to see and hear more stories about what people do that's positive because of their faith. Trudy Kathy White's walk, her stories, her voice, it all continues here on Our American Stories. back with Our American Stories and Trudy Kathy White, who's sharing some honest and vulnerable stories from her book, Climb Every Mountain. You know, health is something that we all really appreciate and value and are blessed. We've got good health. But, you know, John was feeling super great, went to the doctor and got diagnosed with cancer. And it was a hard blow um, when, when John got that news, we realized that his dad's health was failing. In fact, just a few weeks later, his dad passed away and John was facing surgery for his cancer. And and it was a really hard time. And then after the surgery, John thought, well, that's it, I'm, I'm cured and it won't happen again. But sure enough, you know, two years later, he was diagnosed with cancer again, had to go through radiation treatment. And that was when things seemed like, you know, really gloomy for us, it was like, okay, this is probably going to be it. Will John be around very long? And it wasn't a good time at all for us. Yeah, you know, every day John was going for radiation treatment and I would ride with him in the car and we had a little book that we read together, riding together to the hospital each time. And then when we would go and sit in the waiting room there, you know, you begin to see the same people over and over. You've got to go every day. We were there Monday through Friday for six solid weeks. and. And to begin to see some of the same faces, and I, I kept a little book with me that just was my journal that I would write in from time to time. And occasionally, when I would sit there while John was back getting the radiation treatment, I would just kind of look around the room and see people that were there. And I began to try to use that time rather than feeling sorry for myself and thinking I wish I was somewhere else and not here. I began to try to use that time to pray for the people around me, and even got to sometimes have conversations with them, but I would begin to document 
those times of sitting in the room. And so I put those in my book to try to help people see. These are some of the things that were kind of going through my mind. On day four, I wrote down, you know, emotions seem heavy, mostly because of the unknown. I'm thankful to cast all my cares on the Lord because I'm confident that He cares for me. And my prayer was, You are my God. Earnestly, I seek You. I thirst for You. My whole being longs for You. And then I began to, you know, I, I didn't write for a few days, and then we got to day seven after having such a heavy heart. On day seven, we were there, I wrote, beginning to recognize the same people coming in for their treatments. I'm finding myself drawn to pray for those who are here. Some are all alone. I'm thankful to walk this journey with John, whether convenient or inconvenient. It's good to affirm my commitment to him when we got married in sickness or in health. I do. Just two days later, on day number nine, yesterday, a man sat by me waiting on his wife. She's getting both radiation and chemo treatment. They stay at the Hope Lodge in the Atlanta area and they return home each weekend only to find grass to cut, bills to pay. He told me that they're both so very tired. My prayer, Lord, meet the needs of this dear couple Give them a sense of your hope today. Give him patience and love as he cares for his wife. Sustain them today. So what you see happening in my journaling is that, you know, this particular day nine, I'm already beginning to kind of shift my focus to other people, uh, which is so healthy for us to try to do when we're going through hard times to look at what are the needs of other people. I may be needy right now, but boy, there are other people around me that are needy as well. So when I get to day 11, whether in suffering or success, in strength or weakness, in greatness or defeat, His grace sustains. He gives the victory. Next day, day 12. Finding today to be hard, not for John, but for me. Getting up, getting dressed, going downtown over and over, eventually seems tiring. Prayer. Please let me be John's number one supporter. Let me keep my eyes fixed on you. Give us laughter in the journey, joy along the way, increased faith in you for whatever the future holds. Day 38, which is down the road a bit. The end. It's now in sight. The days have really been long, but thank you, God. You have used our children and our friends to offer so much support through prayers, texts, cards, calls, words of encouragement and promises from your word. Today, I cling to Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Looking back, and John's actually doing really well now. His cancer is in remission, and he's back up almost 100% in, in work and everything. But 
going through that time, it was interesting because it caused us to have some really important, necessary conversations. We had to talk about, okay, what would happen if John passed away and how would I manage life? And, you know, we would talk to our children about this. And, you know, those are things you don't necessarily feel like you want to really talk about. But it's very interesting that we all plan our days. We plan our calendars. We kind of talk about what we're going to do next week or even a month from now. And we really aren't even assured of life uh, for even the next day. And yet we plan for it. And, but we rarely talk about death, and we know that death is a reality, and it will happen. We don't know when it'll happen, but we are assured that we are not here on this earth forever. And so we talked about the things that we probably should have talked about maybe even sooner, but when you're facing the reality that death could be knocking at your door, then it kind of forces you, I guess, to begin to have those kind of conversations. And so out of those conversations comes some really sweet sweeter and richer relationships, I guess you could say. I know that John and I, you know, we've been married 41 years, but wow, we are so much further down the road now just because of the season we've walked through. I wouldn't ask to walk through it, but having been through it, God has used it to strengthen our marriage for sure. And I would encourage parents that, you know, when you have a difficulty you're facing, whether it's death or it might even be a wayward child and it's tough on you as a parent, the best thing a mom and dad can do is stick together and not let that difficulty pull you apart because it is easy to kind of withdraw and you got to pull together in your time of difficulty. So I look back on it and I say, God has used it to pull our family together to be even closer now. So then we turn around and then both my parents have passed away. So those are heavy things to deal with back to back. And I remember just, you know, the fact that they were gone and sitting and thinking, okay, now what, I, I really am orphaned. I don't have a mother or a dad. And it was a season of about three, four straight years of having that kind of loss in our family that was very challenging. It's interesting, when I was just a, 10 years younger, 10 years ago, I used to think, well, it shouldn't be that big a deal if your parents pass away, if you're already an adult, and particularly if they've lived a long life. That That's not shouldn't be a really heavy loss. And I was kind of shocked just to how hard it was to here I am in my 60s and my mom and dad are gone. It, it feels very heavy and I would not have really understood that from other friends. In earlier years, if they told me their parents passed away, I would think, well, you know, they're probably dealing okay with it because after all, they're adults anyway. And it's not true. So it's, it's hard to really understand what somebody else is going through if you haven't walked through it or at least in some form or fashion experienced yourself. Grief is real and we have to be very sensitive to that for people when they're walking through and what we should and maybe what we even shouldn't say. Oftentimes less is best. The less you say, sometimes people just need an arm around the shoulder, pat on the back or just a real sincere, I'm so sorry. And a lot of times they don't need to hear a lot of words. They just need to know that they're there. And just as we talk about when we walk through grief, it's important that you remember that God is with you. I think the presence of people around, your presence is very powerful. And many people avoid being with somebody maybe who's walking through grief because they say, I just don't know what to say to them. You know, it's kind of awkward. I don't, I don't know how to carry on the conversation with them because I know that they're dealing with something that's very difficult. And yet, the very thing that they need might be just your presence, just to be there with them. You don't have to really carry on a lot of conversation. Oftentimes, it's just the little things that we do that can make 
such a big difference to encourage other people. My dad often said, there's an easy way to know if people need encouragement. And he said, if they're breathing, they need encouragement. And so, you know, we're all living life and we all need someone to encourage us. And so if we can find a way to encourage people around us through a word or an action or just our own presence, I think it's so important and it brings some healing to the grief that people are going through. And great job on that, Alex. You've been listening to Trudy Kathy White. And my goodness, if you're breathing, you need encouragement. What great wisdom and words from a father and what true words. And what a walk that Trudy had to walk, not only with her husband suffering from cancer, but then losing two parents as well. And it's true no matter how old you get. Losing both of your parents means, well, there's no one to talk to and call up when you need some help and encouragement from those wise voices who had loved you all those years. And by the way, what she did in that hospital ward, how many of us go into that ward and just put our heads down, but that she looked around and looked for opportunities for grace and love and mercy and and camaraderie, Uh, just beautiful. And what a beautiful voice, a much-needed voice in this world, in this time. Trudy Kathy White, her story. By the way, the book is Climb Every Mountain. Go to ClimbEveryMountain.com. Judy Kathy White's story here on Our American Story.